Well, good morning, everyone. This is a little different. The background behind the classes, uh, equipping classes, or what we're calling them, is it's hard to do Sunday morning classes during church services because of all the volunteers that it takes to have with our student, with our children's ministry. And so, with two services, we want everybody to worship, and we we had need. We had 137 kids just last week. Uh, we need lots of adults to to do the kids ministry, and so we thought, how can we teach topics that are important for the church outside of a Sunday morning? And so uh, we thought we'd try two equipping classes this year, Saturday, kind of uh, uh, lots of teaching in one time, uh, but hopefully you'll find it profitable. We'll do the marriage one in the spring as well. Uh, but so thanks for being here. This is our first equipping class. I know we've done things like this over the years, uh, but thanks for being here. Um, I want to open our time in prayer, and you'll see the schedule. We'll do our best to stay to it, but we'll see how it goes. So let's pray, and then we can, uh, we can jump into our time this morning. And so, Father, we do quiet our hearts. This morning, as we come before you and your word and this topic, and we pray, God, that you would help us, that you would teach us, and you would show us, and you would guide us. There, there is a lot of anxiety that can come with a topic like this. There's a lot of unknown. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of debate, curiosity even in the midst of our own little church. And so, God, we pray that you would help us as we talk through this topic according to your word. But I pray that we would do so graciously, humbly, kindly. And so, God, we pray that you would lead us this morning. Our world is all over the place. And it is sad, it is sad to turn on the news and... and and so, God, I pray that as we consider the tr that truth this morning, that you would empower us for who we're meant to be in light of the topic that we're talking about today, that we'd be light in the darkness, that we'd be witnesses. And so, God, I pray that this morning, is this today is not just knowledge-based, fact-based, it's not just a timeline, it's not just events, but God, that, that, that even in this discussion that we would recognize our place in the world today and how you want us to live in light of what we're talking about today. So God, I pray that today, through studying your word and through studying this topic, that you would empower us to be who you've called us to be. That the truth of this topic would impact how we are as parents and workers and neighbors and that it would, it would impact everything that we do as it should. That this isn't just a subject matter that we can study and stay far away from personally, but that the reality of this topic would change everything we do in our lives. And so, God, I pray that we would not divorce this from life application and life change, but that, that this, these truths would touch our hearts and change our lives by the power of your Spirit. And so, God, help us, prepare us. It's a long day, lots of topics and questions and passages and quotes and views and ideas. And so, God, we ask for your help as we think. Help us to think well and to think wisely. Uh, we give you the day that's ahead of us. I'm thankful for everyone that's here, um, for all, the, all those that have decided to come out this morning, those that can't, who are going to be listening. We're thankful, God, that we, we get to spend this time together. And most of all, Father, we thank you for your Son, sending your son, first coming, to be born, to live, to die, to be resurrected for me and for my sins. And God, I, I rejoice in that and we anticipate 
your second coming as well. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So you have your books and you have some pens. This morning we'll start with our first session here and really how this came about, how we chose, how I chose this topic was really what topic am I probably not going to get to on a Sunday morning that people seem to be asking me lots of questions about, especially these last couple of years, how many questions, how many phone calls I have gotten about COVID and wars and different news stories about whether or not we are living in the last days and how, what should we do and how should we respond. And, and uh, there was a, a news article that I read a, about a month ago, and here was the title of the article. And, and even this morning, there was an article in the, in the news that had the same kind of doom and gloom outlook on the future. Now, this headline, this particular headline said, was a very positive headline, nuclear war would trigger a new ice age. I was like, wow, okay, let me read about this. Here were some of the the lines in, in the article. Russia has issued several nuclear doomsday threats to the West and heightened tensions over Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Now new research suggests that if there were ever to be a nuclear war between Russia and the U.S., it would trigger a little ice age lasting thousands of years. The nuclear firestorms would release soot and smoke into the upper atmosphere that would block out the sun and result in crop failure around the world. The first month of detonation, global temperatures would plunge by about 13 degrees. The article goes on that as the planet would get colder, oceans, the oceans would begin to freeze up to six feet deep, six, six million square miles was estimated, which in essence would leave us with an ocean famine. We're not talking about high gas prices. We're talking about worldwide famine, food shortages, chains being broken, oceans being blocked from carrying things from one place to the next. And I left reading that article thinking, I mean, I was in a deep sweat thinking, what is happening in our world? And then I, I found what's called the doomsday clock. I don't know if you've heard of the doomsday clock. I actually had never heard of it a couple or last month when I started to write this message. I was reading about these scientists. They give a, a, a symbolic number or a symbolic time to how close they believe we are to what could potentially be the end of the world. And so specifically, they look at uh, the, the potential of nuclear catastrophe. And based on how we are in the world with our, the arms of nuclear weapons, they determine how close we are to midnight, aka the time when the world could utterly become an end. And so it's been around for a long time. 1947, they gave the time, once a year they give a time, the time was seven minutes to midnight. And every year they give a time, 1972, 12 minutes to midnight. That's when Nixon had just signed an agreement with Russia. One of the quotes in the article from 1972 where it's the closest step to world peace since the Sermon on the Mount. 1988, we were told we're six minutes from midnight. Another treaty had been made with the Soviet Union to dismantle nuclear arms. 1995, we were 14 minutes. I don't, I don't know what happened in 1995, but that sounds good. 2012, it was five minutes. 2022, so last year the clock was closer to midnight than the previous 28 times. Um, and then this last week, which I didn't know when the time came out for the, for the new year, but they do it in January. Just last week, the time for 2023 came out, and it is the closest time to midnight that it has been in the previous 28 times that they've recorded. We are now 90 seconds from midnight. Accelerating nuclear programs in multiple countries 
moved the world into less stable and manageable territory last year. Development of hypersonic glide vehicles. What's that? I don't know what that is, but that sounds scary to me. Ballistic missile defenses, weapon delivery systems that can be flexibly, flexibly used, conventional or nuclear warheads, which raise the probability of miscalculation in times of tension. Well, that's encouraging as well, isn't it? Times of tension. And, and so this is kind of the, the news that we're living at. Again, it living in the news this morning about Russia and the, the potential of a nuclear war. And it causes us to ask, what is going on here, God? And it's not even just the current day events, the questions that I have been getting. Is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast, Pastor Matt? Should I get the vaccine? Is Vladimir Putin the Antichrist? Is cryptocurrency the step that's leading us towards the global currency in Revelation? I just got an email. I thought this was a joke at first. I got an email two weeks ago from, from someone addressing Mount Calvary Church, not just me, warning me and us as a church that Elon Musk is the false prophet of Revelation 13. I thought, is this a joke? Is this a joke? I like Teslas. Not anymore, I guess. And this long email, I'm not talking about like a short little email warning about Elon Musk, but I'm talking pages and pages and pages about how here is this man from Revelation 13 in our midst, the sign of the, the mark of the beast and all this work that he's doing with going into space and on and on and on. And the email left my head spinning. What is happening? What, what are we supposed to know today about the end of the world? Are these the last days? And what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to know? And what are we not supposed to know? And then how do we respond in light of those truths? Now, and so that's what is before us, but a few caveats. I recognize, as I was kind of jumping into this topic with Pastor Dan, because he's helping teach half of our time this morning, there are hundreds of directions we could go with this. And six sessions is not nearly enough. We're not, admittedly, we're not going to be able to touch on everything, though we would love to talk in between sessions or over lunch. If you have questions or thoughts or comments, uh, but we recognize we can't discuss everything. We can't teach, we're not going to teach through the whole book of Revelation. We're not going to touch every single prophecy, but what we want to do this morning is understand the best we can what is the timeline that God's laid out for us about the future in time events. And even that, we're scratching the surface. And so, but just the caveat of we recognize we may not get to whatever you're passionate about within times, but we would love to continue to talk to you about that because everyone has passions. That's the other caveat. This is a, this is a, a dangerous topic in the church because it's so heated. Maybe not as much as it was a couple decades ago, but there are lots of views and lots of thoughts and lots of passion and lots of conviction and lots of debate and disagreement when it comes to this very question. And so we want to approach this topic this morning in humility, in humility, recognizing that the people even in Mount Calvary Church that are sitting around you, that we believe lots of the same things. There is a it is guaranteed that there are people around you that do not think or believe or understand the last days the same way that you do. And so we want to be careful about being dogmatic about things that we don't have to be dogmatic about. Yet it's still helpful to talk about and to think about, but I think we should be careful and humble and have a conversation about what, what God's Word says. And, and when we disagree... This is not a matter of not fellowshipping with one another. This, this is, it's important to talk about it, but we recognize Bible-believing Christians have all sorts of different thoughts on this. And so we want to be careful not to ostracize those people. And so I thought before we, before we jump into the weeds, 
in the weeds of, of the timeline that is hotly debated, I thought, let's start with a groundwork session. Let's start with, and the way that I wanted to start, what are, what are things that evangelicals are going to claim to and believe all together? And as I started this list, the list was getting smaller and smaller because there is not a ton of agreement. But to me, this is the foundation of how we can go off into some of these different areas about what we're going to disagree on. So what are the beliefs, the statements, the positions that I think most evangelicals are going to believe when it comes to the return of Christ. And so this first one in your, in your book, you'll see there's a blank. You probably already filled it in. Are you working ahead? You're guessing the blanks already, aren't you? First one is yes, we are in the last days. It feels wrong to spoil the, the question that is the title of our time this morning, right here at the very beginning. Uh, but this is where we must start. And, and I don't think this is controversial. I don't think, I don't think this is surprising to you. Maybe, maybe it is, but the days that we are living in now are the last days. Christ will soon return. Now, what you might not have thought about is how is it the case that these are the last days? And my answer would be, these are the last days, not because of cryptocurrency or COVID vaccines or Russia or anything you see on Fox News or Elon Musk and Tesla. That's not why I believe we're in the last days. I would argue that we are in the last days because this is the position of the biblical timeline of history in the Word of God. And so there's a blank. I might have put it at the very end, but I'll give it to you now. The Bible defines the last days as the time between the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. This is simple enough, but this is how the Bible describes what are the last days. And so the point, the obvious point in this is it's been the last days for a long time. I mean, we're talking 2,000 years we have been in the last days, but the biblical position is we've had the first days. Creation, the kings and prophets, Israel, 400 years of silence. Jesus comes, he was born, and he had his ministry, and he was crucified. And three, three days later, he was resurrected. The Holy Spirit was given and the church was established. These are the first days that the Bible talks about. And now we've had this transition in how time is discussed in Scripture. Now we are in the end days, the last days, the last things. And Scripture is replete with verse after verse that makes this point abundantly clear. Romans 13, 12. The night is far gone. The day. The day, we're not talking about any day, the day of the return of Christ is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The end of all things is at hand, 1 Peter 4, 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's at hand. It's reachable. That's the expression. It's close enough that you can touch it. It's what's next. James 5, 8. In many of these passages, we will keep coming back to all day today. James 5, 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Acts 2.17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. The Spirit has been poured since Pentecost. Since the Spirit has been poured, according to Acts 2, now we are told we are now officially in the last days. This isn't some future event of some different pouring of the Spirit. This has happened and therefore, we are in the last days. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. So follow the logic here for, for what Paul is telling Timothy. I mean, this sounds like today. That's always what I think. Like this is now. But Paul isn't telling Timothy that this is some future time period of this rampant godlessness. What's he saying? He says at the end, avoid such people today. They are These people are here today, Timothy. These are the people now you are to avoid, as if to say, now is the time of the last days. James 5, 3, your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Hebrews 1, and I could go, we could go on and on. This is, the, this is the thought of Scripture. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has spoken in many ways through history, but in this time... The last days, the last way by which God is going to communicate with us through His Son, by His Word. These are the last days. And so, not a future far off time, but for the last 2,000 years, it has been the last days. Now, it might feel like, how can it be the last days? We've been here for thousands of years. Well, we know how God is with time. This isn't a false alarm Right? It feels almost like melodramatic. Here they are saying, it's here, it's at hand. It, these are the last days, but it's been a long time since, since these passages were put into words and into, to, into Scripture. But we know, 2 Peter 3.8, it's not on your paper, but talking, Peter talking to about the end times. So we'll come back to 2 Peter 3.8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years. Time is quick in the eyes of God. And so when he says it's the last days, it means it is next. It is coming soon. It is next on the agenda. And so, yes, we are in the last days, but not because of the news. Not because of the news or current events, but because this is how Scripture talks about how time works. Secondly, there will be a personal, visible bodily return of Jesus Christ. This is, you know this, but this is a point of agreement when we start talking about how the world is going to come to an end. Christ is coming back, and it's a simple point. But this is the hope of the church. Christ came as a baby in Bethlehem, and he is returning at his second coming as the conquering king the armies of heaven by his side. And this, this is our hope. God is faithful to his promises. And again, this is a topic that we see all through Scripture that we can agree on with all evangelicals. John 14, 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Acts 1 We'll come back to this, but while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way. He will come in the same way, bodily, personally, visibly, the same way that you just saw Jesus ascend to heaven. He will come back. 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We'll be back to that passage. Hebrews 9, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. In Revelation 1-7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, 
And lastly, Revelation 22, he who testifies to these things say, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Now we know we don't agree on the details of what this is gonna look like. And we're gonna discuss, we're gonna discuss it, but this is the foundation. Christ is personally, bodily, visibly going to come back a second time. And it's not gonna be as a baby, but he is gonna come as the conquering king, the king who has come back. Thirdly, we do not know when Christ will return. Now, we, we, you, again, this is nothing new. You recognize this. We talk about this. You know this. Yet this was one of those points that for me, the more I studied the passages, the more it was, it was refreshing to me to remind myself we do not know when. We will not know when. And that was just, there's so much talk about timelines and dates and seasons and signs, but I kept coming back to this. We will not know when. So we, can't, we don't want to spend too much time talking about timelines. Because over and over again, we're told, you're not going to know. You're not going to know. And we'll talk about how, we, how do we reconcile this with all the signs that we're giving, given. But this is a staple of what evangel evangelicals think because Scripture is so clear to say, you will not know when Christ will return. It is signless and it is unexpected. The quote, I love this quote. People want to know how close we are to the end of the last days. I cannot say. What I can't say as a historian is that in the last 2,000 years, whenever Christians found themselves in times of distress, famine, war, culture change, collapse, rampant immorality, depression, etc., they were convinced that we were at the very end. One day, one of them will be right, and we will be at the very end. But I do not think the, the Lord calls us to believe like Millerites. I'm like, what is a Millerite? And so I looked it up. Perhaps you knew this, but in the 1800s, there was a group um, that, that were determined, that decided or figured out when they believed Christ was going to return sometime between the spring of 1843 and the spring of 1844. And so they start, I mean, millions of Christians were listening to this, this sect or cult of, of these secluded believers. And finally they picked a date, October 22nd, 1844. And they sold their things they donned these white robes, and, it's, and they eventually became the Seventh-day Adventists because Christ didn't come back. It's almost comical. I mean, you have a whole list of the Jehovah's Witnesses and their publication, all the wrong predictions they've made about when Christ will return. I saw the book, 88 Reasons Why Christ is Coming Back in 1988. That's funny. They were wrong. They're wrong. But what I see today, that, that is funny, but it doesn't really resonate with us today because we don't see as much of that today in the church. We're not making, most are not making predictions about the exact time because we know we don't know. But here's what I see trending more of today in the church. Instead of giving an exact date, what the, the way we talk is, it is, is this, it has begun. Like the, the, the end of the end is already beginning. The final end. So not just we are in the last days, but we are in the last of the last days. Look at the news. Look at Russia. Look at this war. Look at this prophecy. Well, maybe, but maybe not. We don't know. Now, prophecy is an interesting topic that we can talk about and we will talk about today. But we should be careful not to be dogmatic about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy today. And I'm saying, be careful. I'm not saying there's not a place. There is a place for the study of 
Old Testament prophecy in relation to current day events. But here's the reality. Well, the first question I thought of when I was writing this section, well, what's the purpose of prophecy? What is the purpose of Old Testament prophecy, of Daniel 9 and Daniel 12? Like, what are we to do with it? What's the hope for us to come to at the end of, of reading Old Testament prophecy? And it's a really good question. It's a really good question because I don't know that the purpose of Old Testament prophecy is to give us a specific timeline of what's coming in the future. Here's, here's what I mean by that. If you think of how the purpose of Old Testament prophecy for the first coming of Christ it's interesting that not many people understood the fulfillment of Christ coming in relation to the prophecy in the Old Testament. The chief priests and the scribes of Matthew 2, I mean, they were clueless. All this prophecy about the coming of Christ, they didn't know. They wanted to go and murder Jesus. Mary puzzled over what she had been told about Jesus. The disciples I mean, the disciples did not understand the prophecy of the Old Testament in Christ. I mean, he's right there in front of them. But when did they understand the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy? Once it was finished and accomplished and fulfilled. There's an example in John 16. Once Jesus did it, fulfilled it, completed it, then all of a sudden you realize this prophecy has been fulfilled. And so I guess my caution is trying to use prophecy for something that I don't think it's meant to be used for. Now, what is the purpose of prophecy? Here's a quote. It's not in your book, so you can just listen. Charles Hodge. Prophecy is very different from history. This is an interesting quote. Very different from history. It's not intended to give us a knowledge of the future, analogous to which history gives us of the past. So prophecy is not what history is of the past for the future. In prophecy, instruction is subordinate to moral impression. The occurrence of important events is so predicted as to produce in the minds of the people of God faith that they will certainly come to pass. So faith, we, prophecy is given so that we have faith that these things are going to happen. Enough is made known of their nature and of the time and the mode of their occurrence to awaken attention, desire, or apprehension, as the case may be, to secure proper effort on the part of those concerned to be prepared for what is to come to pass. It follows from what's been said that prophecy makes a general impression with regards to future events, which is reliable and salutary. While the details remain in obscurity, the reality is, is that prophecy is often fulfilled in ways that we don't anticipate. It's, there's, there's a level of prophecy that is built into it that is mysterious. You don't see a lot of people. Now, there are some examples, but oftentimes prophecy isn't figured out before it happens. But instead, it gives you a general idea of future events, faith that it's going to happen, 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 10. It's not in your book. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But what but when the perfect but when what is perfect comes, the partial will be set aside. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror indirectly, but then we will see face to face. We prophesy in part because we know in part, but when the perfect comes, when Christ returns, when Christ comes back, then a lot of the dots will be connected. And all that to say, this is all kind of embedded under the point that I think is the main point. We don't know. We do not know when Christ will return. Prophecy is helpful in giving us a general idea of the seasons and the things that are going to happen, warning us where we need to be warned, encouraging us where we need to be encouraged. But at the end of the day, we won't know. Here are some of the verses. Matthew 24, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, 
that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's a verse we know. We will not know when Christ comes back. But concerning the day of the hour, Mark 13, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So if Jesus doesn't know, that website's not going to know. That email's not going to know. You're, you're just not going to know. Now, Jesus voluntarily restricted his all-knowing omniscience. He gave up this right to know, but forget the details of the verse and how that works. If Jesus doesn't know, you're not going to discern it. You will be surprised. You will not see it coming. Acts 1.6, so when he'd come, they had come together. We've already read this. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, this is an interesting verse. I mean, they're, they won't let go of it. In Acts 1, I mean, the disciples are still wanting Jesus to do what they wanted to do on the earth all along. Restore the kingdom. Rome, get them out of here. And it's just, it's, in a way, it's comical. They can't let go of it. Their last conversation, and here they are, the same thing. So now are you going to restore the kingdom? Well, we know that's not why, that's not what was Jesus was doing with his first coming. That's his second coming. But he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. So two different words for the, for the timeline here. Specific time or general time. You're not going to know. But the Father has fixed by his own authority as as you sometimes hear, stay in your lane. This is, not a, this is not for your authority. It's for the Father. It's not for you to worry about or to think about, to overanalyze. You will not know the time or the season. The season, that's, that's a duration of time. And number four. When Christ returns, he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Maybe a better way to say this, simpler way to say this, there will be a day of judgment for all people. A day of judgment for all people. Now, I can't say a whole lot more with this if we're going to say things that we all agree upon because we don't agree on the number of judgments. I was taught in school that there will be three judgments. The judgment after the tribulation and before the millennium, which we'll talk about here later. But that judgment after the tribulation and before the millennium is the judgment that's described in Matthew 25. I'm not going to read Matthew 25. We've got the judgment of believers. So this would be the Bema seat, as often it's called, 2 Corinthians 5.10, that Christians will stand before the Father and be given their rewards for how they've lived their lives, and then there's the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, where all believers give an account. So three different judgments, that's what I was taught, but not everyone sees it that way. A lot of people, Bible-believing, godly Christians, see one judgment. Matthew 25, Revelation 20, describe the same event. And it doesn't really matter. Well, it does, at, at this point, it doesn't matter where you land. Christ is going to come back and there will be judgment. You will give an answer, a report. Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God, Matthew 12, 36 to 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. There will be judgment. And as Christians, we're not, 
our judgment is not based on our works, but our faith. But there is a system of rewards that are given according to 2 Corinthians 5, 2, based on how we've lived, that we are rewarded based on the life that we lived. Fifthly, finally, we should eagerly long for Christ's return. And again, we start to get into a whole nother topic here, the topic of heaven, but how can we not talk about heaven when we talk about the return of Christ? About the last days, it would be a depressing day, a very depressing day to talk about the day of the Lord with not talking about what happens the next day after the day of the Lord, which is when we enter into him, with him into the new heavens and the new earth. So we should eagerly long for Christ's return. Again, this is replete with scriptures. Our longing for heaven, I think this is a quote somewhere in the, your book, maybe it's not. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. God. We get God in all his presence and all his glory when we get to heaven. And so why do we eagerly long for Christ's return? I mean, it is kind of a foreign concept to long for Jesus coming. What is at the heart of it is, is that we long to be with God completely. Three quick reasons why we should long for Christ's return. His presence experienced. Presence experienced. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. I mean, this is the best part of heaven. We will enjoy the presence of God. And this is what we think of when we think of the coming of Christ. He will dwell with us. In the Old Testament, it was his marvelous presence in the Holy of Holies and in the new heavens and the new earth. There is no contained presence. We are with God continuously. It's unimpeded access to God forever. The quote, I think I put the quote in your book. Sam Storms, we will constantly be more amazed with God, more in love with God, and thus ever more relishing his presence and our relationship with him. Our experience of God will never reach its consummation. It will deepen and develop and intensify and amplify, unfold and increase, broaden and balloon. We get to be with God. That is the best part. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 through 18. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord, always. And we can't fathom how great that's going to be. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Yes, you, we are of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. John 14, 3. I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. We will know and be and enjoy his presence forever. Second, power restored. A verse that I came across as I was doing this study was a sobering verse, 1 John 5, 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's sobering. Like that's today. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's sobering. It's not surprising though. I mean, we, we understand this. The world is in bondage to sin and to rebellion the world is deceived. And so for this reason, to the degree that we believe 
1 John 5, 19 is to the degree that we long for him to come back because when he comes back, power will be restored to Christ. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all, subject all things to himself. All things will be subject to himself. Second Peter 3, 7 through 13. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort, sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are waiting for righteousness to dwell, not to have a world that lies in the power of the evil one. I mean, we wait for the day of the Lord. Now here's a point to think about. We don't long, I, I don't long for this, this particular description of the day of the Lord to come in 2 Peter 3. I mean, it is a day of wrath and judgment. And it is, it is painful to think about. It is painful to think about the final judgment for people who have rejected him. I don't long for that day. I weep because of that day. Well, what do I long for? I, I, I long for righteousness dwelling. I long for what happens the day after the day of the Lord. When we will go and be with him forever. Yeah, I'm also longing for the time that his power is restored. And then lastly, brokenness healed. Revelation 21.4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Romans 8.23, it's not in your book. I'll, I'll read it. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We, why do we long for Christ? Why do we long for, for his second coming? Because we long for brokenness to be healed. Our, I've listed the four types of brokenness. I've taught through this before a couple years ago. Consequence of sin will be no more the brokenness between God and man. Since the garden, every religion in the world has sought to solve this problem between God and man. What did they do in the garden? What happened in the garden? How is this brokenness between God and man, how is it described in the garden? They were kicked out. And there was this brokenness, this chasm. But when Christ returns, the relationship is, is mended. There is no chasm any longer. Brokenness between man and himself. Adam and Eve felt guilty and inward guilt. We've been dealing with guilt ever since the garden in growing intensity. And here, with the coming of Christ, this brokenness is no more. Revelation 21.4, every tear wiped. Brokenness between man and man. The brokenness of relationships, messed up relationships between Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and the history. I mean, it just, it's, Genesis is ugly. It is ugly to look at the interpersonal dynamics of the family. I mean, it is dysfunctional and it is, it is bad. It is really bad. Murder and adultery and all these things that are deception. 
Why do we long for the coming of Christ? Because there will be no longer a brokenness between us and our fellow man in relationships. I mean, this is a, a pain we all feel. We all feel, we all have broken relationships in our families. Right? That's the joke. We all have families, drama. I mean, there's just drama. And we all, we all have it. So why do we long for the return of Christ? Because that brokenness will be fixed and mended and healed. And then lastly, brokenness between man and nature. The ground was cursed in the garden, thorns and thistles, but we long for the time of the new heavens and the new earth. And so here's what we agree upon. But that's it for the rest of the day, okay? This is, what, this is the groundwork, and I think it's really important to just keep coming back to this. This is where we are together. Yes, we are in the last days. Christ will personally, visibly, bodily return, and we don't know when he's going to return. But when he does, he will judge and he will draw us to himself in the new heavens and the new earth. And we are to long for it. So may that be our foundation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the truth of your word that we can stand upon these truths about, your, about the last days and about your second coming. That there's no question and there doesn't need to be any doubt. And so God, we're thankful, God, for the clarity in Scripture that we can rest in these truths, God. And I pray that we won't be quick to just drive past these truths to matters that are a little bit more controversial, but that we will be encouraged and anchored as we consider these next couple of sessions. But God, we love you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and restore and heal and mend and judge dethrone Satan. And we, we long for that time where we will be with you forever. Help us to taste what it will be like as we enjoy you today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.